Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And as I'm recording this, it is a very bitterly cold day in the state of Michigan. I woke up this morning to four degree temperatures and a minus 17 degree wind chill with blowing snow and blizzard-like conditions expected to remain in the area for the next two days. So it's going to be quite uh, an interesting storm that we're in and it reminded me to revisit some historical storms that have hit Michigan. And in doing research I came across a story that is perfectly fitting for today's episode. It is referred to as the worst storm and disaster in Michigan's history. It's known as the White Hurricane of November 1913, and it was considered to be the Great Lakes region's worst storm and disaster in history. So we're going to go into the details of that and venture back to the year 1913 on another winter day. So come along and join me. So the Great Storm of 1913 was easily the Great Lakes region's largest natural disaster in recorded history. It was a four-day-long period of chaos that packed blizzard-like conditions as well as hurricane-force winds, which made it one of the most unique storms to ever hit this area, at least during the time of recorded history here in Michigan and records of weather patterns. If you were on a ship out on the lakes, caught in the unexpected storm, because it apparently came up very quickly, it was something out of a nightmare. And you have to remember, back in 1913, weather satellites didn't exist. Weather prediction wasn't anything other than what you were able to observe in the sky. At best, they received maybe a telegraph report of advance warning or a shortwave radio. But... Broadcast radio was not like it is today, and it didn't exist at that point. According to the FCC.gov website, the first transmitted scheduled radio broadcast didn't occur until November of 1920 from a Pittsburgh station called KDKA, uh, and it was run by Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing, and they transmitted the first scheduled radio broadcast on November 2nd. 1920. So this storm was well before that period of time. So the only form of communication was by telegraph line up to this point or hand-delivered courier of some kind through mail. So it's not surprising to find that a storm of this magnitude could sneak up on somebody, especially if they were out on a ship in the Great Lakes. Certainly they would have had some kind of uh, indicators that were going on that if they were a seasoned captain and familiar with being out in the lake in the wintertime in November, they would have had some early warning signs perhaps, but I don't think anybody expected the magnitude of storm that was about to come through when the storm hit during that November. Mariners that were out on the Great Lakes reported winds gusting up to 100 miles per hour in some spots. And they were also among monster 36-foot waves out in the Great Lakes. And since that time, the storm has been given several monikers. It's been 
given the name of the White Hurricane, the Frozen Fury, and the Big Blow, when you look back at the recorded history of this storm. Essentially, it was two storm systems colliding to produce what forecasters call a meteorological bomb that exploded over the Great Lakes, and it occurred between November 7th and November 11th of 1913. And in that time, more than 250 sailors were lost. At least 12 ships were sank, and there were many more ships that were stranded or smashed along the rocky shorelines from Lake Superior down to Lake Erie. Lake Huron saw the worst of this hellish storm, with eight ships going under and 180 lives lost during one violent six-hour window. Most of the information that I'm going to be including in today's story, by the way, comes from an article written in Michigan Live by Tanda Gittner. And this article came out uh, several years ago covering the history of this storm. There were some bright spots in the storm, like a dramatic rescue of a shipwrecked crew that was on Lake Superior, who had to ride the storm out for 90 hours as their ship became entombed in ice. That ship's name was the L.C. Waldo, and it was a freighter, and it actually made international headlines when the crew was eventually rescued. Their journey had started out with unseasonably warm temperatures, according to the National Weather Service, looking back at that period of time, and the Great Lakes were busy with big freighters and a mix of smaller boats on a late-season shipping run. So the Waldo was a 470-foot steamer, and it was loaded with iron ore. And she'd left Minnesota on Lake Superior's western end and planned across the lake downward for Ohio. And she had 22 crew on board, two women, and the ship's dog. And it was on the initial leg of that journey on November 7th, 1913, when the first of the two colliding storm fronts hit the big lake, and the gale storm warning flags were hoisted in harbor towns. And so the big waves began to roll on Lake Superior, and uh, the squalls became mixed with snow and icy spray as the storm progressed. And at that point, Captain J.W. Duddleson, who was just trying to find some place for the Waldo to get a break from the winds, which he estimated at that time were howling at about 60 miles per hour, and huge waves were breaking over Waldo's bow and raking the deck with uh, the spray of foam that would freeze and began to encase the ship in tons of ice. Now, this was also happening at the same time as several ships along the Great Lakes region were being swallowed up by the storm uh, in the conditions of the hurricane and the wintry mix. And many of them, as I mentioned before, were lost during that storm. So the captain, Duddleson, bent over his chart and he laid a compass course for Manitou Island off the Indian arrow point of the Kinawa Peninsula, hoping to gain the island's shelter before the wind blew the Waldo off the map. And what followed next was what would be referred to as a maritime battle. The Waldo suffered a crippling blow during that struggle to gain the leeward side of the island. And as the steamer approached the Kinawa Peninsula in Michigan, a monster wave had broken over the stern and smashed down the full length of the ship, and it damaged the pilot house. And the ship's navigational equipment 
was lost in that whole strike of the wave. Now, reportedly, there was a type of compass in one of the lifeboats. So one of the mates went to get the compass, crossed the icy deck, and he set that compass on a stool with a lantern light, and that's what they began to steer by. So the Manitou Island was the destination, which was a thousand acre expanse off the tip of Keweenaw. And before they could reach that windbreak, the ship was smashed onto what was known as Gull Rock, a tiny islet just west of the island. Some people have described this historically as a underwater mountain peak, which jutted up from the lake. And it was probably completely invisible in the furious storm, especially at nighttime. So the Waldo wrecks on the rocks in the wee hours of the Saturday morning on November 8th. And the clock starts ticking for a life and death struggle for the sailors and the other passengers that were on that ship. And it wasn't until late Saturday that the rescuers that would eventually come and save the members of the crew of the Waldo were notified that she was in trouble. And it became a long rescue situation with U.S. life-saving stations. And they sent out surfmen from Eagle Harbor and Portage stations. And they were able to ultimately rescue the crew and get everybody out alive. But it became one of the most legendary rescues on the Great Lakes that went down in history of the storm that was known as the White Hurricane. So for the storm's centennial history in 2013, the National Weather Service in Detroit put together a retrospective recreating the storm's condition with today's modern-day forecasting technology. And they compared this modern model with witness accounts from 1913 and found the old-time sailors were not exaggerating the strange violence of the storm that was called the Storm of the Ages. So the pre-storm period of the Great White Hurricane, which meteorologists would refer to it as the pre-storm, affected primarily Lake Superior and Lake Michigan. And it began on November 7th, 1913. And of course, Lake Michigan, we're talking about the entirety of the lake all the way down to southwest Michigan, which is why I'm carrying it on this episode of the podcast. But it also went all the way up to Ontario. And the pre-storm was formidable in its own right. It had storm force winds with heavy snow. It had lake effect snow squalls. It had freezing sprays. And it came along with some very high seas. And so this storm came up rather quickly and several large ships were severely damaged and run aground across the breadth of the entire lake, uh, both lakes, Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. The second phase was called the White Hurricane, which kicked in on November 9th, two days later, and it became the storm's deadliest day, especially for sailors on Lake Huron, who were busy ferrying grain and iron ore to ports before winter at the end of the shipping season. And remember, they had received a period of warmth, so they were hustling and bustling trying to get in the last deliveries and shipment across the lake, predicting that, you know, it was going to start getting colder and the season was going to end. I don't think anyone predicted that a massive storm was right around the corner, especially with the unseasonably warm temperatures they were experiencing, which stimulated the shipping commerce. And so this resultant meteorological bomb hit the Great Lakes region, which produced a very prolonged hurricane force winds, blinding snow squalls, freezing spray, 
and massive wave trains over the Great Lakes. And there's an image that was drawn up to show the storm patterns of how these two storms collided. And there was a storm that came from the south, from Colorado, and then there was a weather front that came from the northeast across the Upper Peninsula, and they collided right in the middle of the Great Lakes region. And of course, the first part of it hit Lake Michigan and Lake Superior, and then it moved across the peninsula, the lower peninsula, to Lake Huron. Now, the storm continued its destructive patterns all the way down to Lake Erie, and there was damage down there, but Lake Huron bore the brunt of it. Front of the storm hit Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, and ultimately the most of the ships that were sunk were on Lake Huron. And it's also noted that a similar storm hit in 1975 that sunk the Edmund Fitzgerald. The patterns were very similar, although the storm in 1913 was much, much more intense, if you can imagine that. Now, there were headlines that followed in the Detroit News that said death tolls on the lake may be 273 people. There were photographs of overturned boats, and there were photos of electric power lines leaning over at 45-degree angles in the Detroit area. And in the background, you can see all the downtown district stores. And high winds toppled utility poles as far away as Cleveland, Ohio. And there were photos in the Cleveland papers of this as well. In the Cleveland paper, there was also a picture of a snowed-in streetcar, uh, often called the Interurban, that was uh, buried in the blizzard that year in November 1913. So in the meteorological simulation, they estimated that by 10 p.m. on Sunday, November 9th, the hurricane force winds across Lake Huron, the maximum winds were likely between 80 to 90 miles per hour. And the sustained winds throughout the entire evening hours was roughly around 60 miles per hour. The peak gusts of winds that were measured in Detroit were at 60 miles per hour, and Port Huron measured 67 miles per hour at about 8 p.m. on November 9th. And many of the boats on Lake Huron sank within a few hours of that time period after 8 p.m. So when those gusts of winds came across, it was um, destructive and it sunk all or most of the boats that sunk during that disastrous storm. In that same simulation by 7 a.m. on Monday, which would have been on November 10th, the low pressure was still over southwest Ontario. The, the widespread hurricane force wind gusts were projected over Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, and their simulation predicted and suggested that the wind gusts there were 80-plus miles per hour in central Lake Superior. One of the ships that survived the storm was called the Harvester, and the captain of that ship reported gusts estimated as high as 100 miles per hour at about 4.30 a.m. on the 10th of November that year, while he was in Lake Superior, just west of one of the islands on Lake Superior. So in a summary of the winds of this meteorological bomb that approached the Great Lakes from the southeast, winds dramatically increased over the Great Lakes with frequent gusts exceeding 80 miles per hour. And this was predicted in the simulation that they created. The projected wind gusts exceeded hurricane force greater than 74 miles per hour for extended periods over Lake Huron, Lake Erie, and East Superior and Lake Michigan. 
Huron's winds were recorded to be lasting about 10 hours. Superior's winds lasted about 20 hours. Michigan's winds lasted 13 hours. And Lake Erie's winds lasted 16 hours. And over the southern part of Lake Huron during the afternoon and evening of Sunday, November 9th, a dramatic increase in wind speeds was indicated from about 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which created wind gusts that increased from 45 knots, 52 miles per hour, to over 70 knots, which was 80 plus miles per hour. So they stated that the survivor reports of the estimated wind gusts on Lake Huron that were described as being over 90 miles per hour on that evening of November 9th was not an unreasonable prediction or estimation based on the computer simulation with all of the facts and data that they analyzed on this historic storm in 1913. So the aftermath of the storm of 1913, looking at it in Retrospective, there was a storm that lasted from November 7th to 11th, 1913. Over 250 lives were lost at sea. At least 12 ships sank, including some of the newest and largest ships that were out there on the water. At least 30 other ships were driven ashore, crippled, or destroyed. And likely it was the worst natural disaster to hit the Great Lakes and one of the deadliest in North American history. And that was the determination of the National Weather Service model that was created in analyzing the history of this storm. There were ships lost or damaged or destroyed in Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, and Lake Erie as well. The majority of the damaged ships occurred on Lake Huron, including the ones that sunk. The list of ships that were lost in the 1913 storm include the John A. McGean, which was lost on Lake Huron, the Argus, which was another freighter. Both of these were freighters, and that was lost on Lake Huron. There was the Isaac M. Scott, also lost on Lake Huron. The Regina, lost on Lake Huron. The Plymouth, which was lost on Lake Michigan near Green Bay. There was the Hydrus, which lost on Lake Huron near the center of the lake, and it's still missing today. The Charles S. Price, another freighter, was lost on Lake Huron near Lexington. The James C. Carruthers was lost on Lake Huron, and that was uh, near Goderich, Ontario, and it's still missing today. The Henry B. Smith was lost on Lake Superior near Marquette. The Leefield was lost on Lake Superior near Argus Island on November 11th, and it's still missing. The Wexford was lost on Lake Huron near Grand Bend, Ontario. And the lightship LV-82 was lost on Lake Erie near Buffalo Harbor on November 10th. And there are photos of a funeral procession that took place in the town square of Goderich, Ontario, that showed horse-drawn hearses carrying the bodies of five unknown sailors, victims of the 1913 storm. And that was obviously in the weeks that followed this massive disaster. Now, a lot of the ships were lost and never recovered, but one of them, the lightship LV-82 Buffalo, was recovered after the storm. It was actually raised from the bottom of Lake Erie in 1915. The ship was originally built in Muskegon, and it sank with all six of the crew during that Great Lakes storm in 1913. And at the time, it was stationed near Point Abino in Ontario, Canada. It was located underwater, about two miles away from that location, 
and it was refloated and repaired, and it returned to service in 1917. It was eventually decommissioned in 1936, so that's kind of an interesting history of one of the freighters that was actually recovered. And it was a light ship, so it wasn't as large as some of the other ships that sank, but it's interesting that they were able to refloat it and put it back into service after a couple of years of repairs. Now, I mentioned the Charles S. Price that sunk on Lake Huron, it had actually capsized, and the 524-foot steel hull of the ship was visible just days after the White Hurricane. And the ship was only three years old, and it was lost with all 28 of the crew. It capsized on November 9th, about 10 miles northeast of the Fort Gratio Lighthouse in Port Huron. It was spotted out in the water a day later, and there was some confusion over which ship it was, and it was visible for several more days before it finally slipped under the waves and sunk to the bottom of Lake Huron. But of course, as I covered earlier in this episode, the LC Waldo, which was driven onto Gull Rock near the Keweenaw Peninsula in Lake Superior, and it was driven onto the rock on November 8th at the second day of the storm. The crews from two U.S. life-saving stations were able to reach the broken ships after about 90 hours of it being out there on the water, and it was entombed in ice and encased in ice. But they were able to rescue all 22 members of the crew, including two women and the ship's dog which is kind of a nice additional bonus story. So that's the story of the Great White Hurricane of November 1913 that came across the Great Lakes and was one of the most destructive storms in U.S. history and damaged a tremendous amount of ships as well as the loss of life on four of the Great Lakes. And historically, Michigan has had a few other incredible huge storms since that time the great blizzard of 1967 and the incredibly huge blizzard of 1978 which i will cover in another episode of this podcast but it's a very fascinating story to review the history of the white hurricane as it was known in the annals of Michigan history. And as mentioned before, it was also called the Frozen Fury and also referred to as the Big Blow. And it was a storm of the century at the time. And with all hopes, will never be repeated again. But as I sit here and I look out at my frosty windows and the cold temperatures outside and the predictions of more wintry weather around the corner in December... I would just want to say, please be safe out there and use precaution and definitely dress warm and be thankful that we at least today have better technology to predict these types of storms, even though we can't necessarily do anything about them when they're here other than be prepared and weather them out. But it's certainly better than being unprepared and being hit broadside like it appears happened to so many people in that great storm of 1913. So this is my second to the last podcast episode of this season. I have one more that will air on Friday, and I'll include a story on that. And then on New Year's Day, I'll be launching season two of Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past and introducing some new bumper music for the season as well as giving you a recap on the year with this podcast and hopefully 
inspire you to share this podcast with others for the coming year because I've got some great plans of how to uh, bring even more wonderful, amazing stories for you in 2023. But that's going to do it for today's episode. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from you. And if you want to give me a big end-of-the-year surprise, it's very easy to do. Just go on to the Apple app or the Spotify app and leave a five-star and some kind words in a review. And that goes a tremendously long way for getting other people to find out about the podcast. So that's my end of the year wish, if you would like to call it that, from all of my listeners out there. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. Thank you.